Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good evening and welcome to My Therapist Says. We want to welcome you to this uh, wonderful event looking at addiction, intervention, speaking truth in love. Uh, This is live streaming, so we do have people that are outside of our auditorium this evening who will be listening in. And this evening, we're going to do something for the very first time, and that is we are welcoming text that will be sent to me here through my own uh, phone up front. So if you are listening by live streaming, we would invite you to text a question that you have for our, uh, our panel members Uh, this evening. So those of you who are here, and so welcome, that are here in the audience, that you are going to be giving one of your questions, perhaps, if you have a question about this topic, by the three by five card, just raising that in the air, and one of our hosts will come by and pick that up and bring that to me, and we'll use that as a way to have this interactive event. I know of no other event, at least in the San Diego County, that conducts what we do here at Skyline Church with My Therapist Says, And I'm Dr. Don Welch, the host, and I'll be working with you this evening and with our panel. We're so glad to have them with us here this evening as well. And again, if you do have a question, if you have a question right now about this topic, addiction, intervention, speaking truth and love, would you please raise that in the air and we can come uh, pick that up and we'll bring that to the front. So our hosts are ready for that if you have a question that you're thinking about. And then those who listening are listening by live streaming, that you can text your question. Here's the phone number, 619 865-4447, 619-865-4447. So we welcome your text questions throughout the evening. It should be very dynamic. If I could take just a moment to introduce our panel members uh, this evening, very good friends of mine and colleagues. I want to introduce uh, Jim Coyle, who's directly to my left. He earned his bachelor's degree from Point Loma Nazarene University. And then he also completed his MA, and I'm going to get my glasses here if I may, his MA in in counseling psychology from National University here in San Diego. And then he's completing his EDD, a doctorate at Azusa Pacific University. And for years, he has been in this field for over 30 years. In fact, he is a specialist in the area of tonight's discussion. He helped to begin two various programs at two hospitals here in San Diego, one at Scripps Memorial Hospital and uh, Children's Hospital, and then also he directed an outpatient psych psych department uh, development with, so it's Children's Hospital and Scripps Memorial Hospital, those two hospitals that he developed program, and he's a colleague of mine at the Family Counseling Services here in San Diego, so we welcome Jim, he's going to be presenting this evening a 15-minute presentation before we do interact with each other. And then Erin Cragen, who has been on our platform several times, and I'm so pleased that she accepted the invitation to be back with us. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology, a a psychology of counseling, that is, at Davis uh, State University here, and a Master of Science in Counseling at Cal State University in Hayward. 
And so she's been a counselor at a high school and also is now a therapist and is with us at the Center for Enriching Relationships. So I welcome you this evening. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then Jim will begin his presentation. And following that, we'll be discussing uh, your questions. It's like having a therapist in your living room where you can ask questions. You'll get a response from us. We'll interact with each other. It's a very dynamic setting. So I'm so glad you're here this evening. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for the gift of knowing how to self-regulate in a very positive way, and that is to be at peace with ourselves and then also to be at peace with you, and that the peace that we seek is not something we create, but it's a peace given to us through Jesus Christ and his wonderful grace that's given to us freely to every person who opens their heart, confesses their sins, and opens their heart to your grace. So we thank you for that this evening. If we don't have that peace, there is a temptation to self-medicate rather than to self-regulate. And I pray this evening as we talk about and discuss this very important topic on addiction, that you would bless our efforts and those who are on this platform who have given numerous years in preparation and then much more in the application of these truths within the therapeutic setting. So we pray your blessing, you would guide us, and we'll give you praise for what you accomplish this evening in Jesus' name, amen. So, Jim, we welcome you. If you would now uh, begin your presentation, helping us with addiction intervention, speaking truth in love. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here. I think uh, this is really a tremendous opportunity to to meet in this way, and uh, I'm just really thankful for being here. You know, what we're going to talk about tonight is what I want to help provide you is just a basic understanding of what we uh, would define as intervention and what that process looks like. So what I'd like to, one of the things that, uh, if you look up the word intervention, oftentimes you'll see the word intervene or intercede. And one of the definitions of that is to intervene in the affairs of another country. Sometimes that's what it feels like we're doing when we're we're, uh, intersecting or interceding in a a situation in our lives. And here's what general definition I kind of want to provide for you in terms of kind of working into the area of addiction. Think about this definition. An intervention is any event or a situation that causes an individual to look at the consequences of their situations or choices and decide to pursue a different path or different choices. So perhaps you can think of a certain situation for yourself uh, or for me personally. For for example, uh, in my family recently, we had a a form of intervention. We have a data share plan. You familiar with that? And um, 10 gigabytes is a significant amount of data for a family of four. And we discovered we're going over our limit. Well, uh, my adolescent teenager was using about three times as much as the three other family members combined. And so we had a little intervention. Right? We're drawing, we want to draw her attention to a situation that's not the best for her or our family. Um, perhaps for me, it was my, uh, my grades. Right, my family's bringing my attention to some kind of behavior I'm having, and how is that affecting me? Um, and there's all kinds of ways in terms of interventions. Sometimes we have inter- inter- interventions by our our physician, who says, "I'm concerned about your behavior because if you continue going down this path, it's not going to bode very well for you." So here's something to think about. One of the I was thinking, where, where could be possibly with that definition one of the first recorded interventions in Scripture? And if we look at Genesis, uh, the account of Genesis chapter 3, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was waiting in the garden. 
in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you, man? Where are you? Where have you been? And the answer, he answered and said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now here's where I'm going to intersect a little something. Addiction, if you're around the field of addiction or recovery, you will hear this phrase, that addiction is a disease of blame and denial. We'll look at where it starts in terms of our own sinfulness. He says, the man said, um, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Blame, right? <laughs> And then um, he asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. But he tries to pin him down with just a mere question. I don't know if you've seen some of the videos of children where they've got, caught them with chocolate on their face hmm. and they, the mom's asking them, did you eat some chocolate? And they go, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Here's another example. What about the prodigal son? The prodigal son, upon realizing the reality of his situation, the consequences of his choices, decides to change course and return home. And the other one I thought of, too, and there are others, is Paul on the road to Damascus. That was a form of intervention, perhaps a divine intervention at that, right? So here's a fact or fiction that I'm going to put out to you, and you probably already know the answer. The addict or the alcoholic has to hit bottom before he or she can be encouraged to change or get help. They have to hit bottom in order to get help. True or false? Mm -hmm. it's, it's false. And, and part of the intervention that we're going to talk about is, is, is an attempt to actually raise someone's bottom or allow, precipitate a crisis so they can see the reality of their situation before natural circumstances can take them there. The problem with that fallacy, that they have to hit bottom before they reach help, is what if their bottom is, not ir is irrecoverable, mm. right? The fact is, in, in 2012, 10,322 people died as a result of alcohol-impaired driving. It's a little too late, would you say, if we're going to wait for them to hit bottom? Mm. So intervention is actually considered as the process of making the bottom visible to the alcoholic and the addict. Okay. Here's another example I'm going to give you in terms of relating to that fallacy. I want you to imagine that, that um, let's say, Solana Beach or Encinitas is just a beautiful sunset view from a cliff. And people are drawn to this cliff because it has a spectacular view of the sunset. And what they find out is over time, they, a number, there's no guardrails, there's no nothing, and people were getting too close to the edge and they were falling to the, the bottom below. And so the city council said, we need to form a committee about this and to study why, why these people are falling so often. And so what they decided to do is they said in, in their wisdom, you know, we're going to do a 90-day pilot, and we're going to put a first aid station down there on the, on the beach at the sand below. And we'll treat the people that actually hit bottom. Well, they come back 90 days later, and they realize that the, you know, the research is showing that just as many people are falling and hanging on below, and the ones that actually survive, we can treat, but what about the ones that aren't? You see where I'm going with this? And then what they decided to do is, you know what, we'll, put, we'll just kind of extend this little safety net out from the side of the cliff, and we'll see if we can catch them there. And what they found out, well, we're catching a few more, but some are missing the net altogether. And then the, the intervention, really, the, the part that really kind of stopped more things is actually they put a guardrail with some signs and some other things. 
It didn't stop it entirely, right? But intervention is that way of trying to raise somebody's bottom, okay? So what is an intervention in the terms of chemical dependency? An intervention is a caring and non-judgmental process used to break through the denial that has prevented your loved one from asking for the help that they need. Okay? And this is borrowed from Vernon Johnson, the Johnson model, who was an Episcopalian priest who cared deeply for alcoholics and addicts and studied what was helpful. And it wasn't the critical crisis. It really came down to the relationships that the alcoholic had with his loved ones that had an effect on them making change in their life. The purpose of an intervention is to get the alcoholic to agree to go into treatment, a treatment program, on the day of the intervention. So let me talk a little bit about a way, what an intervention is not. Okay? Um, it is not coercive. It is not shame-based. Uh, it is not hurtful or angry. It's not an ambush. It's uh, not an uncaring attack. It is a planned interaction between an individual and a group whose sole purpose is to modify the individual's dependence on a harmful substance or behavior or practice. And it's a process of an invitation to, to an education part for the family so they can know what they need to do in order to intervene on someone's behavior. Okay? The truth is, is the intervention is a process founded on love and honesty. And Vernon Johnson found that this caring confrontation Speaking the truth in love was what the, was the most effective way to get an alcoholic to change their behavior. So here's a list of things that would be done in an intervention, okay? What to do and what not to do. You want to write a written, usually what you do is you assemble a team. And that team needs to be people who are going to be, have a cohesion about what needs to happen. They have to have a shared experience with the alcoholic and the behavior. It can't be hearsay, it has to be their direct experience. And what you have each of them do is do a written outline or a letter to organize their thoughts. They detail specific examples. There's no set number required, but typically it's three or five. It doesn't have to be a huge laundry list, but specific examples that directly relate to the person's use of drugs or alcohol and what their experience was with that. So they would write down what happened when the episode occurred, what took place, who was present, and what the impact was on them, okay? And then you want to prepare this list of potential, you also want to prepare, prepare a potential list of excuses or alibis and be prepared to address them if you need to. Uh, and you need to be prepared to define clear expectations of how each people will deal with that individual if they refuse to get help. Now, the letter is what is called a letter of concern. And what um, I suggest folks do is that they, oh, let, let, I'll get back to the letter in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. You do not want, the intervention is not a process for diagnosing the person, making threats you're not prepared to follow through on, or ultimatums, and forget that the individual is responsible for getting help. So, one of the things that, will happen with the intervention is you usually have the, in, the therapist or the interventionist will have you identify the team and you want to make sure that nobody on that team will sabotage the process of an intervention. I've had situations where the team created a bottom line and uh, where they, the individual could no longer live at home unless they got treatment. And the grandmother 
said, oh, honey, they refused to go to treatment. And they said, uh, the grandma said, oh, honey, you can come live with me. Mm. You can see where you, you want to make sure you don't have anybody in the, in the team that would sabotage. Um, so you want to make sure everybody on the team is committed to the intervention. They have five, five specific examples of observations of how their, um, the person's drug use has affected them. So for example, you, you could have a son say, Dad, you usually have them open with, Dad, there's some things I want to share with you, and I hope that you'll listen to me. Will you do that? It's called getting a contract to listen. And then what they do is they proceed to say, Dad, it's hard for me to share these things. I want to tell you that I love you, but I have some, some things I need to share with you, and here's, the, here's some of the things I need to let you know. Two weeks ago when you came to my baseball game, you were drunk out of your mind, Dad. And I get embarrassed when you come to my games and you're drunk. It scares me when you drink. Here's an example of what scared me when you drank. And they give an example of, an ex specific example of when that behavior, does that make sense? You with me? So that's what the letter consists of. Usually you submit these scripts, when you're working with an interventionist, you submit them to him to make sure that they have that tone of specific examples with uh, that are directly related to addiction that they themselves have experienced and that they've been able to attach a feeling to that. Does that make sense? That's what, that's what those letters consist of. And everybody goes around the room and shares that. What an interventionist will do oftentimes is they will have the person who's closest to them go at the very end and the person who's second closest to them emotionally open it up. Okay. Um, and then you get that contract to listen, but the facilitation of the intervention is each person goes in turn, and what they typically end with after they share those things is they end with saying, we would like to see you get help. Dad, I want you to get treatment. Um, employers will even do this, but they all are unified on that. And then the intervention is typically done when that person agrees to get treatment. The other thing that I would say is it's always important for the group, the team, to prepare a bottom line, and you don't use the bottom line unless it's, unless it's necessary. Most interventions don't require that bottom line. If it's done well, typically the person, even before the intervention is done, will say, I'll go get help. What do you want me to do? I'll go get help. They might even say that before everybody's finished. Um, but if you do need to use the bottom line, then you use it. If after all of that, they decide they're not going to. And it has to be a bottom line that everybody's willing to live with. You have to determine this is something we're willing to live with and follow through on. Otherwise, it's just another line in the sand. Um, so once they've agreed to enter treatment, it's successful. I will just add this. In, in the event that they decide that I'm ready to go to treatment and not everybody's finished sharing, I as a facilitator will say, you know, I really appreciate the decision you made. Would you like, you know, if it's a, there's a lot of warmth in the room, I might say, would you like to get a hug and they get hugs from everybody? But I say, you know, I really think it's important for you to hear what everybody else has to share. I'll tell you why, two reasons. I don't tell them this, I'll tell you this. It's important that they hear it, but it's important that the people who prepared that, that have had this pain in their life, share that as well. That's therapeutic for them. Mm -hmm. 
So that, in a nutshell, is what an intervention looks like. Those are the components that you would need to have for an effective intervention. Thank you. Thank you. Would you thank uh, Jim for his presentation? Thank you so much. He has a lot of responses. I, I, I'm waiting for questions from the audience, but I do have a question from someone live streaming. And the question here is, what is the general time frame that intervention starts uh, to show progress or success in changing a person's behavior? So this is the question, what is the general time frame that intervention starts to show progress or success in changing a person's behavior? And as they're thinking about the question, if you do have a question, we're going to even turn this toward marriage in just a moment. Uh, so if you have questions, would you place that on your three by five card and just raise it in the air? And we'll have one of our hosts bring that to me up front. Well, as I understand the question, um, it's important to remember in, in this sense of how we're describing this process of intervention, intervention is a process. And typically, if it's a time frame, uh, when you're meeting to do this type of intervention, you usually want to meet with the family, the team first. You go through having them give examples. You make sure that they are together. You want to make sure that you don't have anybody that's going to sabotage, and you have them begin to write their scripts and they come back together and you actually go over their scripts with them. Sometimes they'll send them to you and I'll review them with them individually or tell, you know, through the telephone or something like that. But then when they come together, you actually have them rehearse it. Mm. And so they get prepared and you actually must have them write it down. So this can be a process because what happens if they don't write it down? You've been in those situations where the feelings come up and you just, sh you, you can't go there. And you, you know, the script actually keeps you that doesn't mean the feelings aren't going to surface. It allows you to continue going through it. So that process, the other thing that the team has to do is they have to prearrange placement. Ideally, they've already got the admission worked out, and when the person agrees, they go right into treatment. So that kind of thing can take some time. Okay. Okay. We're talking about addiction intervention, speaking truth in love. Let's back this up for just a moment, and we think of those who may have addiction. In our family, a mate, a child... Uh, someone in the family, and we use this concept of uh, intervention. This is a very aggressive uh, form in the sense of trying to change what is functioning or happening right at the moment. Am I correct? So could we take this concept, what you've helped us uh, to look at very carefully, let's now move it a little bit to, say, addiction with a mate. Maybe my mate has an addiction, and I'm trying to create some sort of intervention. So we'll bring it practically to the home at this point, and how would you respond to that? And again, if you have questions about this, we had one from our, our live streaming uh, person off-site, but if you have a question, if you just raise your card in the air and we'll uh, respond to that. But how would you, like if we could ratchet this back a bit to um, addiction within the home and say it's a mate who has an addiction but is not willing or able to realize or face or, or even acknowledge the fact that they do have an addiction, but you recognize it. What would be some of the first steps that you would advise um, as a therapist? We don't typically advise, but how would you process with someone about this? Say someone comes to you and they say that your mate, their mate has an addiction or, or maybe even their child, but um, what would you suggest? Well, one would want to determine whether or not it's been only their experience are they, it's the only person who's experiencing the possibility that the person is having symptoms of addiction? 
Is it just the spouses experiencing or is different members of the family experiencing it? That would really determine what steps I would suggest they take. One is they might want to create a safe environment for the, the children as best they can to actually talk. These, these young people oftentimes aren't sharing these kind of thoughts mm -hmm. and feelings. They're oftentimes acting them out mm -hmm. or they're isolating or uh, things like that. And, and if they're given the opportunity to share it, and it's safe enough, they will. And sometimes that can happen in the company of a, of a therapist. But mm -hmm. sometimes the spouse, who's usually the, the, the chief enabler, if they actually get the reality of what's going on and create a space where the children or other family members or even contacting someone's coach, or they're in, it's a little bit dicey when you go out and contact their employer, but if there are other people that they can begin to mm -hmm. solicit feedback from, and create an environment where they don't think there's going to be any repercussions from the from the alcoholic, but they create some level of privacy that says, "Would you please tell me if you've seen anything that concerns you about my spouse and how or my would loved you, one?" Yeah, and Jim and, and Aaron, how would you deal with that type of situation where the the person who is the addict might feel like you were gossiping or breaking confidence? Is that okay? I mean, is it okay to do that or? There have been a couple of approaches in terms of intervention. Sometimes they're done very stealth. They're, they're, it's kind of a surprise. You let the person know they're going to come to a, uh, a meeting at uh, in their doctor's office, and they walk in, and there's a, they're assembled around. And now one of the approaches is actually you actually let them know. You actually let them know um, there's a few of us getting together because we're really concerned about your drinking. And they get nationally, and they don't like it. But just, you just, it's, and that approach has been shown to be very effective. So they'll um, actually come. They'll actually come. Well, to no, they're, they're really curious. But you just let them know. Um, you know, we're, you might want to know. We're just we're concerned because we're talking. We're talking about how we're um, concerned about your drinking, and you know, there are a lot of people that love you, but they're worried about how your drinking's affecting you. So that's that's what I'm going to. I'm just going to a meeting to see what we can all do about it. <laughs> it's been shown to be, and even, they even know the intervention's coming. So that's actually a new development with this same process. When this process started, it was more in a, a more of a, um, they know they were going to, the other thing, you always want to convene them in a neutral place too, by the way, mm -hmm. and it needs to be a place where uh, that is, can be discreet uh, and um, convenient for this type of thing happening. But, so uh, this would not be in your living room or the living room no, of the attic? It needs to be, in it, right. Yes. And obviously they need to be sober when you have this, uh, yes. this type of setup. Yes, and even when we're thinking about alcoholism, we can all be thinking about other addictions. There are many other addictions. There's been lots of research done, however, on alcoholism, and I know you've been in the field all these years. This question, the question we have before is, should the intervention, I believe you answered this, or responded, it should intervention, the intervention team be counseled first to learn the intervention, or would it be best doing the intervention in the therapist's office? I know you addressed some of that. May I read it again? Mm -hmm. Should the intervention team, that's the group of people that are going to be participating, should the intervention team be counseled first to learn the intervention, or would it be best doing the intervention in the therapist's office? Well, I, um, I think it's best for the team to meet with the therapist. To kind of, 
walk through some of their hesitations to kind of normalize some of the natural anxieties they're going to have because this is a big step for them. Hmm. So I think it's real important. And then, that's, and then they, they walk through it and they actually write some of those things down that are really difficult to say. And actually, mm-hmm. as, the more they're able to practice that, then it's not, you know, it's not like a, a cold read when they walk in there and do the intervention because mm-hmm. that's not good. They, they've actually worked through it. They've, they've mulled over some of these things down. They've written it down in a way that they know expresses their love for someone, but their concern and it's a specific behavior and how it's affecting them and letting the person know what they want to see happen. I want to see you get help. I want to have a close relationship, you know. And when that's done in that way, when they've actually been able to rehearse that, it actually reduces some of the anxieties they typically would have if they just walk in and do it cold. I'd never have them do that. That's not good preparation. That's not good clin- mm-hmm. clinically. And so it's not going to go well if they haven't, for them or the other person that they're intervening on, if it's it just they're just jumping into it. So when we, we talk about friends or loved ones, when we engage them in the process, that oftentimes the addict, that could be someone involved in pornography. It could be alcoholism. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this, it could be uh, marijuana, if you will. It could be gambling. Cannabis, gambling. And yet this process can be used. It, it actually began years ago with alcoholism, but the same process can be used with any, any form of addiction. Yes. So what we're seeing is a biblical principle, are we, are we not? The biblical principle is the family of the addict. The family is the great resource for the addict is what you're saying. Yeah. I've done this many times with adolescents, and I know you're, you've worked with hundreds of adolescents over the years with the programs you've developed at some of the very well-known hospitals here, too, at least, here in the San Diego area, is that oftentimes that kind of contracting with a, a child and the parents, it's kind of amazing. They don't want to come to the session, but if they're apprised that that's what we're working on as a contract. I just finished one with an adolescent family, and it was an intervention. Mm-hmm. And either you adhere to this, or there are some very strident uh, results from the child not behaving, actually, uh, the, the child butting into a young adult. They, that the boundaries, my work with adolescents is that they, they need boundaries and structure, and they actually feel safe when there are there. I'm not talking about rigidity. I'm not talking about overbearing boundaries. I'm talking about reasonable boundaries. And when I have families, when I work with families, when I develop, they, they have to develop a health and safety contract because they've, oftentimes their boundaries have been so diffuse. And, and when they have set up a boundary and the, and the adolescent pushes past this, past them, they naturally retreat. They pull back and they draw a new line. And it, and then they come into my office and their adolescent has complete reign over their entire household. So one of the things I begin to work with them on is creating boundaries not to penalize the child, for their own health and safety. So all the boundaries that we work on are all couched around their health and safety as a family. And he can choose to be a part of this if he wants to. But if he's not, then there's going to be consequences. Because, it's, because by the time they get to my office, their own health and safety is, they're, they're feeling anxious all the time. They can't sleep. They're having gastrointestinal problems. There's all kinds of things that the families are experiencing while the, the adolescent is using and drinking and having a good old time. Mm-hmm. So part of the, they, they need that. I remind families and I even remind the adolescents I've worked with, when is the fish its safest? It's when it's in the water. 
When is a train its safest? When it's on track. Hmm. Those tracks are essential for the, the train to travel safely. And, and what I find in, in treatment programs is, if, is you have to create those boundaries for their own safety. And when they begin to see that, they actually begin safe. And when they feel safe, guess what happens? They start sharing their feelings, stuff that they've never talked about before. Because an addict typically doesn't have boundaries. Boundaries right. meaning they're just in control of their whole world, even though it's out of control. Is that, right. is that correct? Listen to this question here. Oh, go right ahead. You're going to respond to that. Is that my father has passed away. This is a question. My father's passed away. My father was an alcoholic. I am not, but I crave sweets. I understand alcohol is a, is, is a sugar, so I feel I have an addiction to eating and sweets. Do I have the same craving as my father? This is a very good question. So do I have the same craving as my father, but satisfy it in a different way because I am a Christian? So it's like Christian sweets, or is it, but the idea is, is the person behaving in a different way? What do you think about that? So do I have the same craving as my father, who's considered alcoholic, but satisfy it in a different way because I am a Christian? I have heard, this is a very, very good question, by the way. I've heard this question many times in different renditions, different ways. It's a powerful question, yet a very painful one, I think, that, that's being asked. How would you respond to that? Well, I think as, um, as Christians, there's some, I won't say sins, addictions, anything that we're using that's doing this, uh, the false comfort, you know, meeting a legitimate need of God illegitimately, whether it's alcohol, which is taboo, or, or overeating sweets or can't, something that's soothing, but it's still an escape. So I don't know if I'd, if I'd, even if we could identify whether it's definitely the, you know, the same biological link to what, how dad used alcohol, though I think even just the awareness that it's not being used to um, to nurture the body or to give wholeness, then it's, it's something maybe that's out of balance. And so it would definitely be something to look at. And I'm, I absolutely believe, you know, food can be one of our, one of our number one primary addictions because it's something we need daily and all the time. And it's one of those ones that can be used without looking so as bad as pornography or, um, alcohol or drugs. Um, so the question though itself was whether it's the same. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's really, you guys might have an answer. I don't know if it's the same, but it's definitely in line there. Yeah, one, one thing I, I, I try to always adhere to is knowing what's within my scope of practice and experience. Yes. And I can't, yes. I can't with any certainty say that, that uh, there's a neurobiological or hereditary link between her uh, or his desire to eat sweets in a way that is consistent with how their father drank. Mm -hmm. um, alcoholics will have a, a strong craving for sugar when they're newly sober. That is very, very true. In fact, it's actually encouraged that they avail themselves of something sweet instead of drink and it, because it metabolizes into sugar. That's a different issue. However, it also gets to that point is what does that where we're kind of going with that question is what does addiction, what are the signals of addiction? Mm. And so even if it had nothing to do with her father's alcoholism or his father's alcoholism, is there a use of sweets? Do, are they eating more than they intend to? Mm. There's a loss of control. That's a symptom of alcoholism. 
the compulsion to eat them, and it's a, is it impairing some part of their functioning? I don't know about you, but I have foods that are comfort foods mm -hmm. for me, right? There's certain foods that I'm more drawn to, that I'm more apt to eat, to comfort myself or nurture myself when I'm anxious or something like that. That doesn't necessarily mean it's an addiction. Where it gets to be an addiction is when whatever substance or event we're doing is we're out of control. We're doing it for longer periods of time or we're doing more of it than we intend to. Mm. Alcoholics don't, there's an a, a saying in AA that the first drink gets you drunk. They have no intention of getting, they get drunk when they don't intend to get drunk. They're just gonna have a couple beers and they'll tell you, I don't know what happened. Mm. That's a common symptom of alcoholism, but that's also true with pornography or other addictions. They, they do it for longer or more of it than they intend to. It's called loss of control. And then with that comes impairment of their functioning. That's when something becomes an addiction. And I don't know if her use of sweets falls into that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very thorough question. I think it goes back to your blame and denial. Mm -hmm. So when we're denying something, uh, and yet not knowing we're denying, I think this is one of the problems. It's elongated. Let's, let's lean into, because there's a question about, please address how to confront sexual addiction. Let's lean into that so the person maybe is blaming or denial. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk about that for a bit? This is a very, very common uh, place uh, for some people. But please address how to confront sexual addiction. So we're back kind of to the intervention. Maybe a mate notices uh, something different. Uh, the person's not interested in him or her any longer. Or there's, there is a distance. Or um, there are elongated uh, events in another room where the person is on the computer or various things. How do you address or confront, say, sexual addiction? Let's lean into that if we could for just a moment. Since, and back, back to your blame and denial. That's what an addict will tend to do, blame or deny, correct? Blame, deny, or minimize. Blame, deny, or minimize. Yeah. Okay. Could we talk about that yeah. a bit? Or they protest control. Pro help us with that. Protest well, pro control means Protesting what? control. When I have somebody who is defending or protesting their control of a substance or, or activity, I already know I have somebody with an addiction. Can you give Let us an example? Let me tell you why. Yes, okay. Control is not an issue for somebody who's never lost control. Hmm. This is a kind of a graphic example. Pregnancy is not an issue for a virgin. Mm. Mm. If I ask someone, could you be pregnant, and they're not sexually active, they might blush and say, well, no. Well, why is that? I, I ask them, to, well, because I'm, I'm not sexually active. In fact, I'm a virgin. There would be no defensiveness about that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. When I have somebody who's already protesting that they have control, I already know that there's an episode of loss of control there. So I will oftentimes, without going right there, I will say, can you give me an example of when you may have had an experience where you drank more than you intended to or for a longer period of time than you intended to? Yeah, but that happened, that's only happened several, just a few times. That's minimization. That's part of their alibi system. So I don't know if that's really directing your question oh. head on, but it is important to kind of hit on that. Well, so with, with sexual addiction, if they begin to manifest that, one of the things I would have a spouse do before they actually try and, con they may say, 
how, let them know how they're experiencing their behavior, let, letting their spouse know, this is how I'm experiencing your behavior, how, how it's making me feel. This is specifically what I'm seeing you do, and it, and it, and it seems like you're pulling away, or it makes me feel, however it makes you feel, I would let them know that. But if they're really not ready to look at that, then I would encourage them to go get the support they need through a support group or at a with a therapist who knows this area. Hmm. Because sometimes it's just too difficult to, to, to face head on. Okay. Yes. Um, when we're thinking about this, that I had a question here. This is the first time I'm using a text from people that are live streaming, so I have a new experience here. But this is the, the question was going back to a little bit. What is the general time frame that intervention starts to show progress or success in changing a person's behavior? What is the general time frame that intervention starts to show progress or success in changing a person's behavior? And maybe you have an example. This is a question from live streaming. It's a text to me. Well, as I understand the question, it's that how, what is the time frame for the intervention for someone to change behavior? An intervention isn't really done to help someone change their behavior. It's to help them recognize the fact that their behavior is not healthy and they, they need to go about the process of changing their behavior. It's that they begin to seek help for something that they can't control themselves on their own. So they're not just trying to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, in AA it says that no human power could relieve us of our alcoholism, mm -hmm. which means me, that means you. But it says, but God could and would if he were sought. That's right out of the AA big book. Mm. So for me, the intervention isn't about the process of how long it takes to make them change. The intervention is successful once the person has agreed to seek the change that we want to see them have. That's the first step in making change for anything, is the decision that I need to make the change. That's the first part of the process, right? Think about changes you've made in your own life. The first part of it was, I can't keep doing what I'm doing. I can't keep spending what I'm spending. I can't keep whatever that joy. It had to come. That's the, the goal of the intervention. The process after that is whatever steps they're taking to, to get the support or the help or whatever it is they're doing to make the change that is the desired outcome. I know that I have a text that kind of goes back to a little bit. Uh, it was asked, is Jim saying addiction is not hereditary? I was told it was hereditary. If we can go back, we're digressing a bit to this question. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not hereditary. There is, a, there is research done by Dr. Mark Shuckett right here at UCSD in the VA uh, that shows that there's a genetic predisposition. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's a gene that they found, but his research on adult males of alcoholics shows that it does tend to travel in families. So no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that her use of sugar, that person's use of sugar doesn't necessarily mean that she has the same uh, genetic predisposition towards alcoholism that her, her father had. Hmm. Now, based on the fact that she's a child of an alcoholic, her chances are much greater based on the research. Hmm. A, a child of a single parent who's an alcoholic or addict has a four times greater chance of becoming alcoholic or addict themselves. If both parents are addicted, it's eightfold. And that's based on the research by Dr. Mark Shuckett. Okay, okay. 
Um, th there's, I want to, if I can, there's a question here, but I want to lean back into this idea that if someone believes their mate, say, is addicted to pornography, some sexual activity, what would be an intervention, intervention you would suggest and how would you go about that? That it, it seems to be very obvious by a number of features, factors. What at that point would you suggest? What would you suggest to that person for intervention? Well, first of all, um, you actually you kind of address this, I think, Jim, as far as the person. I think it's the, the demeanor in which you approach the spouse. Because a lot of times, I know I've seen often in my office, where whichever the opposite spouse, there's so much anger and hurt and um, belief of what that means, that it comes out as attacking and accusatory. And when that happens, when, when I'm being attacked or accused of something, I'm going to put up the dukes or defend myself or hide. And so really, what an intervention would be to possibly, if it talk to someone, get the support you need to be able to go to the spouse in love and say, as Jim said, how, you know, I'm feeling, I'm hurting, I'm recognizing because of what I'm thinking is going on, where it's really coming from, from that, the, the deeper, really the, the painful parts of the, of the spouse who it's maybe being done to, what they're feeling, and then being brought in that light as opposed to accusatory. Yeah, I, I, um, in, in my work with this particular issue, I've had um, spouses who've come to me, um, and sometimes what I've done is, uh, if the spouse is not willing, the other spouse that they're concerned about is not willing to come into treatment to talk about these things, and they find that the conversation itself is just too difficult for them, what I begin to do is have them uh, write a letter. And it may go through several drafts because I want it to be uncensored. I want them to get out all that ugly stuff that they're feeling based on what they've been seeing out. And then over several reiterations, they're able to put it with assertive communication. This is what I've seen. This is how it makes me feel. And this is what I want to see you do. That's, that's the same format that most interventions follow. I've seen you... This is what I experienced when you did this on this date. It made me feel terrible. It made me feel ugly or whatever it made them feel. And this is what I want to see happen for you, for us. Same kind of thing. And so they actually, sometimes in some cases, they've actually written a letter and they've just left it on the desk where they might see it. They might have laid it on the computer that they've known their spouse to be using. And sometimes that can be effective in getting the person to seek help because they don't have to worry about the pushback. I've even had my college students who are daughters of uh, alcoholic fathers um, leave a letter like that about their father's alcoholism at Thanksgiving because they knew they couldn't have the conversation. And what's been interesting to me is to watch the fathers kind of begin to turn and look and make some progress in that area. Follow it up with a phone call, and I've seen a lot of movement on that. But it was really important for the children to kind of get that, for, mm -hmm. the, for them to get that information out. But that's, that's one approach. 
Isn't that the that first step? Isn't that a difficult thing to take that first step and to a- acknowledge on your end that there is a problem or an addiction on the part of a loved one? I think in most people that seek treatment do not do it on their own. Mm. It's very very rare. It's very rare. They usually come into treatment as a result of the of the strained relationship that's causing in their family members or their their employer or something like that. It's it's usually like that definition. It's an incident or an event or a situation that causes them to have the reality that says I can't keep going down this path and I need to make a choice to go some go down somewhere different. And it's the intervention. Sometimes the intervention is a family. Sometimes it's an employer saying, you want a job, you need to stop drinking, you need to get yourself some help. Some, that's an intervention, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's those kind of situations. But. So if, if I have fear about doing this, uh, an intervention related to alcoholism or say pornography with a loved one or gambling or th- there are just numbers of issues. Uh, there's going to be a video gaming. It's going to be in the next, next DSM, per, possibly. Those kinds of things and, and more that I shouldn't be as afraid leaning into the issue of trying to gently confront. Yes, I, that's one of the biggest challenges there is, is that I, there, people say, I'm fearful because I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose the relationship. Mm-hmm. What they fail to realize is they're already losing the relationship. Mm. I've worked a lot with college students, and, and what I can, they will sometimes want me to go and get their friend to get them some help. I said, I don't have any experience with their eating disorder. Hmm. I don't have any experience with their, what can, you do. And they're very fearful of losing the relationship. And I said, well, based on what you've just shared with me, the trajectory that they're going on, you've, you've already lost the relationship. In fact, if you don't act, there's a possibility they can they can get uh, some very severe consequences down the path. You staying silent is a form of enabling. You need to speak the truth in love. And so what's been really powerful is to see when they actually have the courage to do that and they have an intervention. There's been countless young people I've worked with who actually got treatment as a result of the fact that their friends cared enough Mm. to say something, say the hard truth about how their eating disorder or their alcoholism or their drug addiction or their video gaming or something was affecting them and how they were seeing it happen. And those people have gotten treatment. One young woman I know who was intervened on at a college campus by her friends got treatment. She's now an uh, MFT intern and wants to specialize in the area that she herself is recovering from. Mm. And it all came about as a result of her friends having the courage to do this very same process we're talking about. And so that takes a lot of courage uh, to confront. Jesus often did that in the New Testament. He would confront issues that were very significant and that were hurting people deeply. This next question asks, what if the addict has no sober friends or family? So what if the addict has no sober friends or family? Because we're talking about intervention. And if the addict agrees to get help, what happens with their job or dependents, etc.? It's, it's a question that someone is obviously facing right at the moment, that maybe an addict has no sober friends or family. What do you do with that? That's a very challenging question. Well, what was one of the part, what happens if they go, it's almost like a two-part 
question. Oh, yes. I'm right. sorry, Aaron. Yes. Yeah. What if the addict has no sober friends or family? And then, and if the addict agrees to get help, mm-hmm. what happens with their job, etc.? Right. Yes. There's, uh, there's so many um, painful... Con- I think that's a lot of reasons why a lot of people aren't willing to maybe even confront an addict or an addiction because of the possible consequences after. I mean, there's a, there's a comfort probably in how life has gone, but it's gotten to a point where it's no longer comfortable enough. Well, there are going to be consequences. And that, I would think, within the... If they did get the help, usually they would get the resources to be able to then handle that. Um, and... I mean, that would be the ideal situation. You probably have a lot more experience than I do on that, Jim. Well, there's, I heard two things. One is, what if they have no a sober support system? That's very common, especially as, as the disease progresses. More, more than likely, the, their associations are with those who have a similar lifestyle. So it's a very common thing that alcoholics and addicts who embark on recovery uh, deal with. And... Very often they're taught to kind of to really push away or really kind of sever to some extent those relationships with people are like that. And you'll find that some actually do that really well because they've gotten to this place where I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so just say, I walked away from that entirely. Others kind of have to kind of walk through that process because maybe they have gone through an awful lot of things with those people. I never want to minimize the relationships that that some of my clients have with people who are addicts because even though those other friends are using substances, oftentimes they're using it for the same raw emotional pain that my clients had to walk through. And even though they seem like they've been fair-weather friends, a lot of them have been close to different struggles. But one of the challenges they also see is I realize what I need more as I'm going through this recovery, I'm going to get from people who've been there, done that. And that's where they find them in 12-step recovery, celebrate recovery, AA. AA says the therapeutic value of one alcoholic to another is without parallel. Mm. It's still the number one way people get sober. It still is. It started with two people, Dr. Bob and Bill W., two men. And the only reason why they decided to meet together was to give each other support to stay sober. And now it's international. You can find a meeting in Johannesburg, South Africa. I had a 17-year-old client who I never thought was going to stay sober one month, let alone a year. He was, he was a challenge. And he came back. He had a, over a year sobriety. He came back to the program and he said, hey, I went on a trip to South Africa with my sister and I went to a meeting. And they were so blown away that there was a 17-year-old kid over there, 18-year-old kid over there at a meeting that they let me uh, chair the meeting. So <laughs> my encouragement is that, you know, I just, they need to, they can find those people that understand what they're feeling, but also understand how to walk through some of those landmines or those challenges they're going to experience in their early recovery and develop a new social support system for their newfound life. Isn't that what we do when we come to church? Isn't that what happens? Mm-hmm. Some of us have walked through some difficult challenges in our life before we ever came to know Christ. 
And sometimes walking into that new life meant we had to congregate with people who'd been there, done that, or can show us a new way of living. I think Paul had to do that too after his conversion, didn't he? As I understand it, I'm not a theologian. I don't pretend to be one on TV. That's true, yes. <laughs> yes. When we're talking about, say, intervention, by the way, I wanted to ask, help us to understand why is it that an alcoholic helping another alcoholic, or a recovering, excuse me, alcoholic helping another recovering alcoholic, why is that so useful? You, you talked about that they understand, that they kind of get it, there's a yeah. sense of support. Yeah, I think they... they um, that does not mean that everybody who... There are a lot of people who can help people who don't have... I've been fortunate that I have had been blessed by a career that's worked with people with addictions when I myself am not in recovery. But there is something therapeutically beneficial to someone who actually understands what it's like. The one feeling I can't relate to my clients with is the compulsion to use something that is killing me. Mm. I, 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 don't, I won't have that understanding. Mm. They have the craving to use something that if I don't use it, I'm going to feel terrible, but at the same time, I know it's going to bring me some level of relief with the possibility of having devastating consequences. That's why in AA they say we have an allergy of the body with an obsession of the mind. Mm. We don't have that with cookies. Mm. It's because the substances have such a powerful effect on our euphoria. So let me give it to you in this, in this kind of, this is a really kind of a cheesy story perhaps, but it illustrates what we're talking about. Why is that helpful? There's this, so the story goes like this. This, the, uh, remember Mayberry RFD? So there's this, this remote village, this remote town, and uh, one of the guys coming into town, um, one of the gentlemen that, who lives in the, in the town, in the village, he was out wandering around in the outskirts of the town, and he fell into this deep well, this abandoned well. And he'd been down there for days, and somebody riding by on a horse heard him. And so what that did was it created all kinds of commotion in the town. They were trying to get this guy out of the well for, for several days, to the point where it actually got on CNN, and there was news coverage, and they had you know, all kinds of things that they were lowering down, trying to draw this guy out. Everything they tried was not effective. So one of the guys from the town had been out, out of the town and had not been watching the news, and he comes in to get his hair cut at the barber shop, and they got the news on, and, and one of the barbers says, yes, too bad, what happened to Fred? And so Jack says, what, what happened to Fred? Oh, he's been, you haven't heard? He's been down on that well for several days. He says, well, I, gotta, I think I've got to go out there and pay a visit. So Jack goes out to where the well is. And there's all this commotion, and he finds out he's been down there for several days. Everything they've tried hasn't worked. So Jack says, why don't you lower me down? They go, what are you talking about? Lower you down? Why would we do that? Then we'd have both of you down there. He goes, you know, has your way worked? Anything you've tried work? Lower me down. So they lower him down. Fred's looking at Jack. Jack, what are you doing here? This is crazy. Now we're both down here. Jack says to Fred, I know it seems crazy, but I've been down here before, and I know how to get out. Hmm. I mean, that's why people who've been there and done that can be very effective in helping somebody hmm. who has this disease. Hmm. Powerful. Yeah, powerful illustration. Let's take this intervention uh, just a little bit of different direction, because this next question helps us to do that. How do you address, when we're talking interventions here still, because tonight, Addiction Intervention, Speaking Truth and Love is the title. How do you address behaviors like moodiness, anger, unpredictability, 
emotional distance when the addiction part is addressed, but it's, it's still hurting the family. So it, it sounds like the question is asking, um, what do you do with someone who is hurting a family or a relationship by their moodiness, anger, unpredictability, emotional distance? How do you intervene? I think that's what this question, at least I'm per- perceiving, is asking. How do you intervene in that type of a situation? Well, my, I think you can use some of the similar techniques you would use for any, you know, maybe something more like alcohol. Boundaries, um, and it's how, how often it's allowed. I was, you said something really profound. Though a person can only continue their behavior and have it affect you if it's allowed. And a lot of times... I know in in families when someone else is angry, it can you know just take over the the essence of the whole family, and instead it's almost like maybe you the family almost has to step away, show them a different response to the emotional output they have, as opposed to um, maybe kind of continuing the same cycle. And a lot of times we want to put it out there on the person who has the moodiness when we can't do anything with them, but when we make the change, it almost forces a change. Yeah, is this moodiness or this behavior separate from addiction? Is that what I'm They didn't say in the question, but it's... Because, I mean, some of that is very common in early recovery because they're gonna go through what is called post-acute withdrawal. So they can have withdrawal-like symptoms up to 30 days, 60 days, and even 90 days after they're sober. Um, but if it's about behavior, I mean, one of the things that's important is just any kind of, that kind of be. every alcoholic and addict has an enabler, has an enabler. They all have enablers. They may have several enablers. And so the same thing is true with certain behaviors that are not healthy for that individual to continue to maintain or for the family for that person to continue to maintain. So really what it comes down to is whether or not the family is willing or different members are willing to say, this isn't acceptable anymore, and they're willing to follow through whatever thing needs to happen for that person to get help or for the whole family to get help. Sometimes I actually encourage families that if even if that if the person that they're concerned isn't getting help, you go get help. Hmm. That's what so everybody that was you saying, actually, wasn't it? Right. You go get you help, change. and you begin to learn how to change. That's, why the, that's what the power of Al-Anon is about. It's really them beginning to learn how to take care of themselves and change themselves mm-hmm. and not continue to enable the, enable the behavior. Yes, because talk to us for just a moment. So in addiction, um, when you, you see an addict, what happens to the person who's living with the addict? For just a moment, let's talk about that, because we're trying to look at intervention. Sometimes it's very difficult because you're being changed within an addict's life, Correct. Can we talk about what happens to, the, say, the spouse of the addict? When they're living with the addiction? Yeah, when oh, the, the person who's addicted, excuse me, yes. Well, they just have a significant amount of pain, mm-hmm. um, um, anger, resentment, guilt. Oftentimes they have their own guilt because... They've crossed their own moral boundaries mm-hmm. to protect or rescue the person from mm-hmm. their behavior. Um, they go through oftentimes what we call resignation, then rage themselves, where 
They'll be resigned to it one minute and they'll have rage the next minute. It ha and then it can have, because of all those things, they become very preoccupied with the alcoholic or the addict. And so a lot of their mental energy is spent on that. Uh, and so they're, they're inclined to have a lot of stress and on anxiety. And they're, they're actually, uh, there are medical consequences to codependency. And the medical consequences of living with an alcoholic are parallel to the medical consequences of the alcoholic themselves. Mm. Gastrointestinal problems for the alcoholic, gastrointestinal problems for the spouse or the family members. Mm. You know what's really amazing? Frequent accidents, falls, car accidents even, preoccupation. They're, they're so focused or preoccupied with that their, the stress and the anxiety they experience affects them physically, emotionally, and mentally. And so it is, it's, it's powerful. And so that one, oftentimes it's, it's actually the spouse that actually will, or the family members will actually seek help or treatment long before the alcoholic or the addict does. Mm. But that's the first step in change. That's the first step in affecting change, at least for them. We had a saying when it's not just the alcoholic we want to see get well. It's the family when we go. And we mm. know if the family gets well, even if the alcoholic doesn't, then that's a success. Mm. If the alcoholic gets well, then that's a success. If they all do, it does. But here's the thing. If the family gets well and they quit enabling, it has an indirect effect on the alcoholic mm -hmm. because he's more likely or she's more likely to get help because he doesn't have those enablers supporting his behavior anymore. He's more likely to fall and hit bottom and realize the consequences of his choices because they're not rescuing him from it. That's why it's important to get them to get help mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. get support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you said it absolutely. Because I was thinking for me, I, I, would, I often get the codependent, the enabler coming into me. And it's very interesting because if I allowed the session to be up to them, it would be, you know, talk the entire time about the other person, and getting that, getting the um, the spouse, girlfriend, child of that person instead looking at back at themselves and getting back to a place of. Um, of starting to heal themselves, it's amazing to see then the, sh the shift that actually happens. But I almost think, you know, I, I, as you said, it's almost like a, I won't call it an addiction, because, but it becomes such an ingrained pattern of the partner to the addict to have so many of their own symptoms. And so whoever comes in, boy, you can, I think, can be such a change agent for the whole system. Yeah, sometimes it, it sounds silly, but sometimes when I, well, when I'm working with a spouse or the codependent, it's so often for them to be so, they're taking care of so many other people other than themselves. Hmm. I'll say, when was the last time you did something that was nurturing to you? Crickets, right? Mm -hmm. They can't think of anything. And sometimes I actually prescribe them. I'll say, this is what, I want you to do something nurturing to you today take care of you today but yeah it's 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 a really it's a, the the best the best thing i can encourage them to do is to go to al-anon to go to support get support and to get them to empower themselves to talk about their own feelings um and um 
I don't know if I had anything more on that. Okay. We have about six minutes left, and I want to make sure we have almost all the questions answered, but if we could talk for just a moment on, on intervention related to mental illness. The question that is being asked is, if, uh, if mental illness such as bipolar uh, is present, is an intervention possible? Um, could we first respond, and let's describe quickly what bipolar is. Could we do that? what bipolar is, and then is there a possibility for an intervention? This is a very challenging question, yet it apropos for this because it's such a devastating disorder with which to live. So could we quickly give uh, an understanding as to what bipolar is? And then secondly, is it possible to have an intervention? This is, a, this is the question that's being asked. I kind of want to turn the table on the moderator and say, I, know, I right. think you should answer that question myself. <laughs> that's great. Well, if you could just give a, an understanding, quick understanding of, of when we look at bipolar, which used to be called manic depressive, and there's two different, two different areas of bipolar. Uh, one is much more tragic because the person has huge swings from the manic that you're up for 46, 72 hours, and you feel like you can rule the world, accomplish amazing things, and then you crash. And then there's the other part of bipolar that either bipolar 1 or bipolar 2 where it's not as devastating. You would have hypomanic. That means that it wouldn't be as aggressive. You could almost live with it. But it's very difficult nonetheless to live with someone with this kind of behavior because it's kind of living with the unexpected. You never know what to expect. So what could be an intervention? So I started it, Jim. Now, if you both don't mind uh, responding to the question, if mental illness is such a, you know, is... is uh, if, if mental illness, such as bipolar disorder, is present, is intervention possible? Because it sounds like this person is really challenged to even know what to do, where to begin. I'd say absolutely. Um, and um, if I often can think that sometimes an alcoholic possibly I don't want to enter into an area that's not my you know scope of competence here though it seems like oftentimes someone with mental illness will use alcohol to try to medicate modulate the moods and so oftentimes they go hand in hand mm -hmm. it seems um, as far as intervention goes I would think it would be the same though you might want to address that more further um. Yeah, I think the same process can be used for someone who's struggling with bipolar. And usually it's the people who are closest to them that, that are affected by it. Um, and so if you can, you obviously you want to, just like with an alcoholic, you want to intervene when they're sober. You'd want to intervene with someone bipolar when they're probably not in a manic state. Because when they're in a manic state, they're feeling this significant euphoria and they're not going to think, anything's wrong with them at all. That's, uh, and that's also what makes it challenging for them to actually get help because if they do get on something that actually stabilizes their mood, some form of medication, they actually, they'll struggle with the same thing that an alcoholic will struggle with and that is that, that experience of the high. They enjoy, who wouldn't want to enjoy this natural state of ecstasy and, and euphoria that you know, is not chemically induced but yet it makes their life unmanageable. I mean, we've all had 
well, maybe we, I should speak for myself. I mean, you've been so kind of like, and my daughter was so happy the other day. It was like, we wanted her to kind of calm down. You know, she was just kind of like peeling her off the wall. She was so ecstatic about something. And yet you don't want to squelch her joy. But mm -hmm. these folks, their mania actually impairs their functioning. So it's this, this, this place where they can't function well. And the same thing is true with these depressive cycles they get in. So what, to just, the question really would be that you would want to intervene when they're not in that state. Mm. And you'd want to bring people together to let them know how they're experiencing. I happen to know some, uh, some close family friends who had this type of intervention on the mom, on the mother, because um, she would just disappear. And she'd, they'd find her 100 miles away, and she'd gone through every credit card and mm. kind of almost like a fugue state. And so the family got together after a number of different experiences like this mm. and intervened, and she actually got help uh, as a result of seeing the impact it was having on um, her husband and her four children. Well, thank you. I think we almost answered and responded, actually, most of the questions. And Jim and Aaron, thank you for being with us this evening. Would you join me in thanking them as our panel members? Uh, this evening. Thank you very much. And would like to mention that we have all of these uh, My Therapist Says presentations on audio by just going to the Skyline Church website. And then our next My Therapist Says, Tuesday, January 6th, will be Dr. Dan Jenkins as the presenter. We'll have Yolanda Gorick, who's been with us before. And it's tying into anxious free living. And we thought that is very apropos after Christmas, which sometimes can be very challenging for many people with relationships and families. So looking at how to embrace that anxiety. So that is coming up January 6th. Thank you for letting others know. We thank those who have joined us by live streaming and your questions. We were able to answer or respond to several of those, if not most of those questions. So we thank you for being here this evening. Let's have a word of prayer as we close this evening. Thank you, Father, so much for your blessing in each of our lives and for the work that we were doing tonight to help people to enjoy a more peaceful, joy-filled life. And that comes from you. And yet there can be addictions that keep us from absorbing, inculcating, enjoying your great grace and love and that satisfaction that only comes through you. So we thank you. We bless you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, and I hope that you have a great, great evening.